0: Well, welcome to another episode of the Purple Podcast. Matthew Collar here and my guest. Purple Podcast listeners will know Eric Eager from Pro Football Focus. Eric, how are you?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I am doing great. I am ready for another preseason game as we record this uh, leading up to Jaguars-Vikings and the first time that I get to go back to U.S. Bank Stadium for the year and watch third and fourth stringers for the majority of the time. Um, but But there is a, a lot to talk about with the Minnesota Vikings. So I wanted to ask some analytical questions for you about the impact that the Vikings offensive line being dinged up and not really all that talented at this moment could have on their offense. Because I think that's the biggest question of the year is how will shortcomings up front, Take away from Kirk Cousins, Delvin Cook, Adam Thielen, Stefan Diggs, Kyle Rudolph, the weapons that they have. So let's just, I want to break this up into the inside linemen and the outside. So when it comes to the interior of the Vikings offensive line, right now they are missing everyone. Easton's out for the year. Elf Line hasn't gotten back yet from offseason surgery. And Mike Remmers is out. Let's say in the worst-case scenario you are playing three backups on the interior offensive line. What might be the impact, the biggest area of impact on the Vikings if they have troubles on the inside?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there are things we can't quantify, like, you know, what a center has to do in terms of his calls. Um, But, you know, from the perspective of analytics, it's usually on I mean, the interior a lot of the stability, a lot of the – um I would say the value comes in their ability to, you know, block up front for the run game. So, you know, running's not necessarily as important as passing, but I do think that, you know, the Vikings fans and, you know, media and everything, they're pretty, you know, bullish on Dalvin Cook coming back. I think if the interior of the offensive line is a little weak going into the season, uh, you know, that's probably going to be curbed a little bit as, as Dalvin Cook's comeback? I know Latavius Murray looked great the other day. You know, I – I don't necessarily know if that's sustainable with an offensive line on the interior that, that's that's going to struggle. In terms of pass blocking, we know that, you know, for example, left guard um, is a position that doesn't not matter. But in terms of uh, an offense's uh, sensitivity to poor play there, it's the least sensitive. So it might be more seen in, in the Vikings' ability to sort of pick up yards on the ground relative to, you know, what we see, for example, with the tackle.
0: What do you think is the best way to mitigate some of the effect of interior pressure? Because when I look at their uh, opponents that are coming up in the first five weeks, you have DeForest Buckner, Mike Daniels, then Ndamukong maybe possibly assuming Aaron Donald, and then uh, Fletcher Cox. I mean, this is the all-star team going up against uh, the Vikings interior offensive line. And those guys are great at creating pressure. So as opposed to outside pressure, is it a bigger, is it a smaller impact? What do you see and how can they work around that?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because there has been this narrative, I think, for a while that interior pressure is actually becoming more valuable. And uh, my colleague and I, George Shahuri, we wrote about this on PFF. Interior pressure is valuable, but in terms of Versus edge pressure, it's not as valuable on a play-to-play basis. So, while I think it's, I think we're a little bit nervous about the Vikings, you know, stopping those interior players, they faced a lot of interior players last year. And for the most part, their passing game, uh, was pretty, pretty good, despite having a player like Nick Easton, who I think was pretty below average last year, had outline as a rookie, and then Joe Berger kind of playing out of position. The Vikings offense is fine. Um it's that edge pressure, I think, that can really, you know, derail an offense. So, I'm not, not worried about their interior in terms of stopping, you know, interior pressure, but um I'm not as worried as I think some people are in terms of like stopping it. I think what you have to do is you have to, you know, steam away from it. You have to throw quickly. You have to possibly put in bigger formations, but then throw out of those bigger formations, uh, et cetera. But in terms of, you know, Aside from getting better players to play left guard through right guard, uh, you know I think that you basically have to steam away from it.
0: Okay, let's talk about the tackles because Riley Reif last year had an okay season overall. He got off to a really good start, and I was impressed. But then some back issues. I believe he had to miss a game against Carolina or had to leave a game against Carolina, and it seemed like his play started to dip when he had those injuries, and it's not the first time for him that he's been dinged up. Uh, How good do you see him at left tackle or how secure are the Vikings at that position and how might it impact them if they are not secure there?
1: Yeah, I think he's probably somewhere a slightly below average left tackle. So, you know, obviously, you know, going from T.J. Clemming, who is like worth a, a full win below replacement himself in 2016, to him seems like a lot. And I do think that that transition from a guy like Clemmings to Reese is worth more than the transition from Reese to somebody like Tyron Smith. Um, but at the same time, the the most concerning thing for me about the Vikings offensive line is that fact that Riley Reese is the mainstay, the guy that hasn't been injured yet, arguably their best player there. And to me, he's still slightly below average at his position. So that's kind of where I see him. I don't think he's a complete disaster, but as you said, like, they're, they're not that many perturbations away from him not necessarily being the guy that they paid all that money to.
0: Where do we stand on left tackle versus right tackle in terms of value toward winning?
1: Uh Well, the right tackle's value relative to the left tackle is higher than the difference of salaries, right? So, aside from Wayne Johnson, right tackles make substantially less on average than left tackles, um, but you know, the left tackle is a little bit more valuable. Pressure given up by a left tackle is uh worth, I think, something like a tenth of an expected point worse than a pressure given up by a right tackle. And I think a lot of that comes from things like strip sacks, right? Strip sacks are, are big ETA-type plays. And then, uh you know, just the fact that, like, I, I think quarterbacks do get sacked more from their blind side on pressures than they do get because most every quarterback in the NFL now is right-handed and they can see pressure coming from the right. But it's not – right tackles are still very valuable because a lot of the edge players in the league are from the left side, the Bon Millers, the Khalil Max, the Justin Houston, those types of players. So there is a ton of value on the right side. They're just not paid.
0: Bring back the left-handed quarterback. That's what I say. There's got to be somebody I mean, out there. It-
1: Get Kellen Moore in
0: there, man. Yeah. What happened to Kellen Moore? I think he he's probably coaching somewhere or something like that. All those backup quarterbacks either become broadcasters or coaches right after. Uh at right,
1: amateur golfer. right.
0: Yeah. Uh, at right tackle, Rashad Hill is dinged up. Brian O'Neill, the rookie, might have to step in and start. There's still the option of kicking Mike Remmers out to right tackle and trying to survive on the inside if they can, because uh, Brian O'Neill even took some reps at guard in practice. Uh, If it's one of those three, how afraid of those scenarios should Vikings fans be?
1: Yeah, I, I would say that, I would say that the current situation should frighten Vikings fans. And I would say that any situation that's viewed as worse than the current situation should scare Vikings fans pretty, pretty heavily. I think, The, the best thing that could happen for the Vikings this year is for Brian O'Neill to, you know, overcome everyone's skepticism about him and become a, you know, the right tackle that I think that they want him to be in like two years.
0: Well, I think it's trending that way. Uh, Remmers moving him from right tackle inside. Do you think that that was a good move or should they have just drafted a guard and keep Remmers at right tackle? What, what did the numbers say about him as a right tackle?
1: Uh, he was certainly better than Rashad Hill last year. Uh, and so I would, you know, at, I think he's sort of in that reef territory where relative to other right tackles, he's below average, but he's not a disaster. And I would say, I would characterize, uh, Rashad Hill as something somewhere between TJ Clemmings and, uh, Mike Remmers. So I don't know, like when you move Rem, Remmers to guard, is he, I think he's worse there. He's certainly worse there than Joe Berger was. So are, you're getting worse at two positions. I agree with you. I think right, right guard would have been a place if you could draft somebody or sign somebody as a free agent. You're possibly staying equally as good at one position and getting better at another.
0: So what impact might it have on Kirk Cousins if the Vikings struggle to protect him? Because I look at last year for him where it was not a great offensive line situation in Washington. In 2016, it was, and he was fine and had a really, really good year. But in 2017, they had a lot of injuries there, and he led the league in yards lost to sacks. I I feel like we could be trending that way again if they don't kind of come together here and something happens or they trade for another player or someone just rises to the occasion out of nowhere.
1: Yeah, and that's not something trivial either. So if you look league-wide during the pro football focus era, which is 2006 to now, going from a bottom-fourth offensive line in pass protection to a top-fourth. So we're not even talking about elite. We're just saying, are you in the lower quartile, the upper quartile? That's worth a win and a half, right? So it's not as big as quarterback play where it's like four and a half wins when you go from lower quartile to upper quartile, but it's not trivial either. That's the difference between a team – you know, that's the difference in many ways between the 2016 Vikings and a little bit worse than the 2017 Vikings. It's simply going from, you know, being in that lower part, the kind of embarrassing part of the league, to maybe, a, you know, a higher part. Um, so from a team perspective, it does actually matter whether or not you can pass the check We saw a season ago, though, that you can have – you can be kind of average there, and your quarterback can get you out of that fine in case Keenum uh, took – Fewer sacks than all but one quarterback when he was pressured on a per play basis. So he was able to mitigate some of those issues. Cousins, on the other hand, has struggled in that area. He's been actually a pretty good passer when clean, which is pretty, uh, you know, encouraging. But in terms of taking sacks, in terms of fumbles, in terms of his, his play under pressure, which we know is somewhat unstable, but often, you know, we don't want quarterbacks under pressure on average. That those are the concerning things. And I think. You know, his supporting cast catching the football is a far better group this year than it was in 2017's Washington. But it looks like the offensive line that he's going to have in Minnesota might actually be worse. So, um, you know, hidden in, hidden in all of his 4,000 yards, 20 touchdowns, is the fact that there are these things that you said. The sacks that he takes, the fumbles that he takes, those don't show up on the fantasy stats but they are real, and I I do think that they have the possibility of keeping the Vikings out of that uproar echelon of teams this year.
0: So Kirk talked a lot at the podium yesterday about uh, play action and why he's been one of the few guys who is <clears throat> con- consistently good in the play action over, over the last three years, and he credited a lot of the play design. And when you look back at the – play callers he's had there's been some really smart people that have been dialing him up for him and then talked about all the other roles that have to come together and the film study that he does is it sustainable that he will continue to be good in play action and is that one of the ways that John Filippo can resolve or at least mitigate some of the offensive line issues
1: yeah so Kirk Cousins last season was 118.7 in play action only Deshaun Watson and Marcus Mariota were better than him. To answer your question, though, I would say no, only because almost every statistic we've looked at at Pro Football Focus, how a quarterback does when using play action is the most noisy. So it's the thing that we can least attribute to the quarterback himself, and that would sort of coincide with what Cousin said in that it's a lot of scheme it's a lot of how good the play caller is. It's a lot of, it's a lot how good the offense around him is more so than a quarterback's ability to to, to deliver in those situations. So I, you know, he has been consistently good there, but I would more look to the fact that Sean McVay and, and uh, uh, Jay Gruden have been his play callers more than I would look at Kirk Cousins being necessarily this maestro with play action. Uh, you know, Marcus Mariota a season ago, for example, was quite poor and almost you know, a lot of his, a lot of quarterback play was terrific with play action. You know, there have been other guys in the past. Jared Goff was, you know, basically 13, uh, quarterback rating points better when under play action. Blake Bortles was almost 30 points better, uh, with play action than without play action. So like Jay Cutler even was 32.5 points better with play action. So it's one of those things where you see a lot of like weaker quarterbacks who do well with play action. And I think you can, it's more likely to be able to attribute those things to things like, say, in Bortles' case, to Marone, in Cutler's case, to Gase, right? Like, those guys we know are good quarterback coaches, good offensive lines, more so than quarterbacks who we sort of know aren't very good.
0: And it's, it's really notable when it comes to this that the play-action impact is quite a bit uh, in terms of uh, for Cousins in his numbers, but at the same time... I look at this season as there are going to be a lot of close games uh, because of who they're playing against. and It's hard to predict, but in 2016, it was a lot of good teams. It was a tough schedule, and they ended up coming short in some close games, twice against Detroit, once against Washington, and, th- and that's the difference between 8-8 and 11-5. And, and one of the issues that Sam Bradford has was that he did not handle it very well when the other team knew he was going to pass and he knew he was going to pass and they could play two deep safeties and no linebackers were biting on play action and things like that is that also a concern for kirk cousins
1: absolutely and i think that this stems from i think a a conversation we've had privately about quarterbacks the 2016 vikings rarely faced teams with weaker quarterbacks than them and you know, if you want a five-minute handicap on who's going to win an NFL game, usually you want to look at who's the better quarterback. If you look at the Vikings' schedule, San Francisco likely has a better quarterback. Green Bay will twice have a better quarterback than them. The Eagles, the Saints, the Lions possibly have a better quarterback. Uh, the Patriots, the Seahawks, who might be weak this year, but they have a better quarterback than the Vikings. I, I, counted, I think it's something like nine games. You could, you can make it a, a pretty good case that the Vikings have the weaker of the two quarterbacks. And then the 10th game, they face Los Angeles on the road on a Thursday night. So there are going to be games where the Vikings are just going to be in a position where they have their, are underdogs from that one, you know, key perspective, right? And, and if that's the case, then Cousins is going to have to be put in positions to, you know, to, you know, uh, match wits with these guys. And, and that's a lot. That's a lot more difficult to do than what Case Keenum was charged with last year, which was to sort of maintain a lead that his defense got him or, you know, just drive the car kind of thing. Because down the stretch, the Vikings were playing teams like Cincinnati and Baltimore and and Cleveland and, you know, where, where they had the decided edge at quarterback and defensively. And so it was just up to Case Keenum not to screw it up.
0: And uh, Case Keenum also, one of the major beneficiaries of great play action, which was a concern of, of ours last year, kind of some of this same conversation. It, it feels like, Eric, that Cousins has a lot of those same earmarks of the previous two quarterbacks with uh, Bradford and Keenum, but he's almost somewhere in between. He doesn't have the quite the arm talent of Sam Bradford, but he's a little more willing to take a risk he doesn't quite have the moxie of Case Keenum, uh, but he isn't also a, as good in the red zone as Keenum. And that's another thing I wanted to ask you about is just Keenum really was excellent at operating this offense in the red zone. There, were, Whether it was going off script or just finding the guy he was supposed to go to or somebody making a special play, with Cousins, is he anywhere close to that same level because I think that that's why Keenum was able to win, not just that he operated the play actions, but when he really needed to execute in a, in a situation where they needed to score a touchdown, he was always able to do it.
1: Yeah, and, you know, red zone efficiency is another thing that's very unstable, I think mostly because of sample size, but also because, you know, any any high leverage situation in football is generally going to be something where we remember or we chart the, the differences which are substantial, touchdown versus no touchdown, or interception versus touchdown. But in, in Cousins' case, he has struggled there. And in Keenum's case, he did well in 20, 2017. Now, I would say, it, the, I think that the probably the question that we want to ask is, can Cousins play as well as Keenum did last year in the red zone? Because my answer to that and the answer to, can Keenum play as well this year in the red zone as he did last year in the red zone? The answer to those are both no, because I think it's just, you know, uh, Case just had such an outlier season there, and it's just going to be difficult for any quarterback to sort of duplicate that, and especially one that, you know, like Cousins, who had struggled not necessarily as a passer in the red zone, but as a quarterback, you know, taking sacks, fumbling the football, and then, of course, you know, completing passes down there. I, he's he's had his difficulties at times, that, and, you know, Like I said before, it's not that stable of a thing, so it wouldn't be super surprising if he had a plus year there, but I do think it would be very surprising if he had as good of a year as Case Keenum did uh, in 2017 there.
0: Now let me me swing this back the other way, because I feel like we have checked every box of things to be worried about with Kirk Cousins, the offensive line, the red zone, the uh, late game situations, and they have struggled uh, at times in the two-minute drill and things like that in camp. Um, At the same time, delvin Cook's impact coming back, what might that be? Does that actually help him, or is it overstated?
1: I think you know like if we look at somebody like Chris Thompson a season ago with washington you know he was a he was a substantially you know good player for them um and he was you know worth i think somewhere around a full win in terms of you know above replacement for them running backs that I think are even a little bit more. Uh, even a little bit more, uh, versatile that can also run the football, like Dalvin Cook. If they have a Todd Gurley level, like, impact on their team, that's worth, you know, over a win above a replacement player. And, and I think that Cook certainly has that potential. My only issue with, with, with sort of making that projection is the offensive line. Now we saw, we saw with Gurley, he went from a rookie of the year in 2015 to somebody who averaged something like .5 yards before contact in 2016. And we're all like, Oh, what's wrong with Todd Gurley. And then 2017 comes around and they, they shore up the offensive line. They get a good play caller and he's this dynamo. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so my issue with running backs is that running backs are not talented or not, ta- you know, their, their talent level is sort of almost independent necessarily of, of how they perform. It's everything around them. So, um, you know, I, if the offensive line can be average, I think Dalvin Cook can approach you know those Kamara and and, uh, and Bell and and the Gurley numbers. I think if they aren't, I think he can approach Chris Thompson's number. Chris Thompson was worth .7 wins above replacement last year at about 350 snaps, which is quite a bit for a running back uh, who's only you know role is catching the football, but he was extremely good at it. And so you know I would say that that would probably be the floor for somebody like Cook if they can't run the ball, but he can be. A dynamo out of the backfield for cousins who seems to prefer those type of players. Uh, I think that would, you know, be an impact that we could expect.
0: And I also think that they are starting in terms of designing this offense with the idea that they can get Delvin Cook the ball in any way, shape, or form. So if he's lining up in the slot, if he is lining up in the shotgun in the backfield or as an outside wide receiver, that he can do all of those things because he's just a really special talent. That gives them more options. So even if there are some struggles with the offensive line, okay, so maybe you're not running successfully up the middle he's also an outside runner. He's also a wide receiver. I mean, he could pretty much do anything like someone like Todd Gurley or David Johnson or LaShawn McCoy. That helps them a ton in terms of pushing forward as an offense through some of the offensive line issues. Um, do you have, do you have more on that?
1: Yeah. And uh, another interesting thing about running the football and play action is that it, it appears that how good you are at running the football has almost no influence on how good you are at executing play action. So hmm. Uh, you know, we just talked about that, you know, play action and how it's a boon for offenses. If that's the case again, it'll almost be independent of whether or not the Vikings can actually get cooked going on the ground, which is uh to sort of circle back and be positive. That's a positive thing, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think in 2016, the Vikings were also good in play action, had zero running game whatsoever with uh Matt Asiata as the uh, star of the show. Before I let you go, Eric, I, I want to ask you about a trend in the NFL that you're going to be watching because uh, Mike Zimmer and Kirk Cousins, and John Filippo and everybody has been asked about RPOs. And I'm interested to see how the Vikings use RPOs because they didn't with Sam Bradford or with uh, Case Keenum last year. They didn't do that with Pat Trimmer's offense, but uh, Cousins has talked pretty openly about the fact that they're going to use them this year so maybe it's that or is there something else that you think could really change the way that we look at or maybe a year from now we're saying how will the vikings copy so-and-so's model
1: yeah so what's interesting and i i, I only heard this in the office in passing, so by the exact number but um I, I believe the expected points on all rpos last year was still like not great right so <laughs> It might, they, I, I believe on, on run plays that are RPOs, I believe they were a higher yards per carry. But run plays in general are sucker plays. And so even RPOs that are run plays were not great. So I, I'm of the opinion that RPOs are a little bit of a bad, or a little overrated. Um, however, if you're the Vikings, what I think really helps you is the fact that your wide receivers can beat man coverage. Because, you know, because I think that oh, what a defense is going to try to do a lot now is to basically single up on those, on those receivers, uh, to sort of try to avoid, uh, the passing part of the RPO, which can be so deadly. Um, but your, your receivers can beat man coverage. So you're kind of, uh, in, impervious to some of those scheme changes. So that's good. For me, I think one of the things that I want to see in the NFL this year, or I want to monitor is how, and, and there was an article about this in 538 about how How teams, how much more are teams going to throw out of traditionally run formations? So we saw this with Atlanta in 2016, how they had something like a perfect passer rating out of three tight end passes. Mm -hmm. Uh, we saw it, we saw it, you know, last season with San Francisco, how they, they signed Kyle Yuschek to a big deal. They drafted a kind of a traditional, you know, football tight end, George (laughs) Kittle, right? And then, and they threw out of those big formations and were very successful. Uh, Washington was great with play, actually were great with their two tight end sets. And I think that that's kind of the evolution. They are kind of getting away from maybe more 11 personnel, coming back to 12 and 21 personnel, but throwing out of those and sort of seeing, you know, is that the, is that the new league hack is to, is to sort of lull teams into thinking that you're going to run and throwing, even though, you know, I think if anybody looks at a stat sheet, they know that it's statistically more likely to be successful throwing out of those formations. And, you know, I I don't know whether or not it's the, uh, you know, teams refusing to go nickel against those big, you know, teams and Mm -hmm. refusing to give up three or four yards on the ground or what it is. But uh, that's the one I want to monitor.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, I I talked a little bit about this with Ted Wynn uh, in one of our podcasts, and his point was – If you do stay in nickel, then you're setting yourself up for second and four all the time or second and five all the time, which teams tend to convert. And at the same time, you would be okay with giving up a lot of second and fives and then try to run again or whatever it might be saying, okay, I dare you to sort of you know, slowly work the ball down the field with these handoffs over and over again. Uh, and and taking away those those pass plays and those play actions that come out of that, and <clears throat> I think that that also plays into the play action success is when you run out David Morgan or C J Ham onto the field that the other team is thinking run, and then you can help yourself with the play action. So basically, what you're saying, Eric, is the key to the Vikings reaching the Super Bowl is C J Ham
1: and and David Morgan, but. Like I try to think about this it, 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 it's interesting because I would say like why don't why don't you just teach your linebackers not to bite up on the run to just give up you know three four yards per run? Right. and it does seem like some teams do that, but like you and I are like thirty years, thirty two years old or something like that and back when we were kids learning how to football right who are the best players on in the NFL at the time to, uh,
0: say that again i
1: when when we were kids learning how to football, who is the best who are the best players? Who are winning the MVPs?
0: Oh, the running backs.
1: Emmett Smith, Barry yeah. Sand right, so like from a young age, if you're a linebacker, you're our age, right, or maybe a little younger. Right. Like, all those instincts are ingrained in you from twenty years ago, right? And and so like for me it's like, well, you can try to teach these guys all you want not to bite on run fakes and to drop first and all that kind of stuff, but Like, it's probably going to take another generation. And then, of course, football coaches to actually believe what we're saying. Right. To, for this never to be a thing, right? And, and that to me is explaining why, you know, going big, uh, you know, passing out of big formations is effective, why play action works regardless of how good your running game is, et cetera, et cetera. It's because of like what happened 20 years ago where Hemis Smith (laughs) and Barry Sanders and Thurman Thomas Mm -hmm. and all those guys were winning the MVP of the league because, you know, Terrell Davis, right. It's just, it's literally like a a full generation behind uh, what's really going on.
0: Right, right, right. Um, But I still have so much love for tight ends, uh, number two tight ends and fullbacks.
1: I mean, Jeff Dugan, man, Jim Klein saucer, the Vikings. I mean, you would have been a good Vikings fan back in the day, I think.
0: Uh, Yes, for sure. And, you know, I mean, even for me as just a league watcher, give me Sam Gash all day. Like, I, I will take – who was um, the other – Lorenzo Neal. So yes. I, I I guess when it pertains to these guys, Moose Johnson, I will never forget Emmett Smith bawling, talking about Moose Johnson when he went into the Hall of Fame, just saying, like, I never would have come close to all the yards that I got if it wasn't for Moose Johnson. And that's that is like the most football moment ever is we have tears from a running back – over a fullback.
1: Right. And, and what was crazy is what ended up happening is that Moose Johnson was far more, far better at talking about football after his career was over, despite all those games. <laughs> yes. Was.
0: Yes. Yeah. I like listening to Moose Johnson, but Emmett really struggled in that. The star players, they don't always succeed when it comes to being the broadcasters. It's the, uh, I, I noticed that Dan Orlovsky is a rising star, and Vikings fans remember Dan Orlovsky for running out of the back of the end zone with the football in his hand. So <laughs>
1: that that was the difference between the Vikings, a playoff-bound Vikings team, losing to an zero sixteen Lions team back in two thousand eight.
0: Ah, yeah, yeah, that's right, man. Great times, great yeah. times with fullbacks and backup quarterbacks, Eric. Uh, I really appreciate all of your time and your analysis, uh, bringing this to us, and we will talk again very soon. Thanks for having me, and thank you all for listening to the Purple Podcast.